1: to Revelation chapter 20 for the second week we're looking at verses 1 through 10 at the topic of the millennium the thousand year reign of Christ on earth I stopped abruptly last week right in the middle of this sermon Um, I think I have a little more clarity than I did a week ago Uh, maybe I'll have a little more next week but it'll be too late then because we're gonna be going on to the next part of Revelation 20, but I'm going to keep studying the millennium. My desire this morning, I was thinking about years ago when um, John Calvin wrote the introduction to his commentary to the Romans, and he was trying to argue why the world needed yet another commentary on Romans. That was 500 years ago, and there have been 500 years of commentaries on Romans since then, but there was a phrase he used that stuck with me. He was seeking when he wrote his commentary to achieve lucid brevity. Or to put it more lucidly, um, to achieve clarity and briefness that I would come at this morning, Revelation 20, 1 through 10, that's my goal. I want to try to briefly explain and clearly explain what I think is happening in these incredible words. Now, as we study the Bible week after week, I'm just more and more in awe of this book. I'm in awe of the Bible. It's a miracle. It's it's a miracle. By any definition that you give, this is a miracle. This is an encounter with the living God. There is no human explanation for this book. It has predictions about the future in it that were made centuries before, and now they've been fulfilled. And so it's a supernatural book because it goes outside of nature. We don't know what's going to happen even tomorrow, James says. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. So how much more do we not know what's going to happen centuries in the future, but this book has told us, has predicted the first coming of Christ. In in great detail, the aspects of of his genealogy, where he would be born, what his life would consist of, uh, the specific prophecies that were given of the first coming of Christ, miraculous, and they've been fulfilled now, all of them in great detail. But now as we come to the end of the Bible, we come to the the final book of the Bible, we come to the book of Revelation. It's a book unlike any other book in this library of books, which the Bible really is, 66 books, written from the mind of God through various authors at different times. But this book is unlike any others. Now it borrows heavily on Old Testament uh, prophecies and Old Testament language, it's true, but it has a new word to say. And it teaches us details about the second coming of Christ. And about the events that precede the second coming. And and he has laid this out for us and we've been walking through it now for months. We believe that this world is is poisoned with sin. Dying with sin. And it's going to take a cataclysm or a series really of cataclysms. Such as we can scarcely even imagine to, to draw out the elect, the chosen from this horrible sin racked worlds and get us into heaven, into a new heaven, new earth, in our resurrection bodies. It's a very painful, perilous journey, and we've been seeing that. And many of the things we've been studying from the breaking open of the seven seals through the seven trumpets, through the seven bowls have not yet happened. They've not, perhaps in some ways, even begun. Some general signs have happened, but they've been happening for 20 centuries now. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes in various places, that's just been going on. But there are cataclysmic events that are recorded in Revelation 8 and 9 with the seven trumpets, in which the ecology of the earth is so ripped apart by the judgments of God. A third of the of the sea turning to blood, and a third of the sea creatures dying, and all of the green a third of the green plants and all of the grass burned up, and, and a third of the fresh water poisoned, and that's just the first go-round. Then in the second go-round with the seven. Uh, bowls poured out in Revelation 16 we're told the entire sea turns to blood and every living thing in the sea dies we've not seen anything like that ecological disaster these things are yet to come it's in the future and we've seen the reign of Antichrist, this terrible one world ruler that comes and, and somehow takes over the levers of power of human government all over the world militarily is able to deceive and talk his way into power and then he wields it in an overpowering sort of way, the Antichrist taught in Revelation 13 and the false prophet that comes along and makes the whole thing religious and makes this individual a god that people are worshiping. And people all over the world are compelled by the force of military might and the police state to receive a mark, the mark of the beast, and without it they cannot buy or sell. And most of the people do and they do it willingly and they worship the beast and uh, God through all of this, protects a remnant of his own. Jews who at last, finally, in the final act of redemptive history, will turn and see in Christ their Savior, their Messiah, their son of David. At last, they embrace him. And they weep for him as for an only son, Zechariah says. And they come to him in faith. And Paul says in Romans 11, and so all Israel will be saved. And they are there many of them in Palestine, and how the Antichrist mobilizes his forces militarily and comes over the surface of the earth and comes to wipe out the followers of Christ. Not just the Jews, but specifically those, I think, in Palestine. And we have that great battle of Armageddon predicted in Revelation 16 and then again in Revelation 17. And it is the context of the second coming of Christ, that we saw in Revelation 19. Jesus comes back with the armies of heaven... And he slaughters this vast army that comes to wipe out his people. So that's the second coming of Christ, and then we get Revelation 20. And as we come to Revelation 20, we need to know something about theology, something about church history. I went over all this last, last week, but there are three basic views on the millennium. One of them, I think, has been, in my opinion, so vigorously discredited by the unfolding of of history, that I don't mention it much, and I didn't mention it last week. That's post millennialism. The idea that the gospel will so saturate the world that everything will get better and better in this world, and people will just more and more and more come to Christ, and the world's just gonna and, get, and then uh, Jesus will come, and that's it. Well, I don't see that. I think the last century has been pretty rough on planet Earth. And I think it's right for us to marry together current events and Scripture. Jesus wants us to do that with the abomination of desolation. When you see it, then the prophecy of Daniel's come true, run for your lives. That's how that works. So we're supposed to marry. So I've set that aside. I respect those that view post-millennialism as as a a reasonable view. That leaves me as an evangelical with two views on the millennium. Now remember the millennium means the thousand-year reign. And that's what we're talking about in Revelation 21 through 10. The thousand-year reign of Christ physically on the earth. And there are two evangelical views. And they are, uh, it is possible to evangelical and be an amillennialist. And the amillennial view teaches that that Revelation twenty one through 10 which you heard Richard read for us a moment ago, is just a recapitulation of what we've already covered in church history and the spread of the gospel and how Satan has been bound in some way, restricted to keep him from deceiving the nation so that the gospel can spread. And there's some some weight to this because in matthew chapter 12 uh jesus talks about the strong man he says no one can plunder his house unless he first binds the strong man then he can plunder his house so uh, millennialism just would walk through and say this is just talking about about the spread of the gospel for a thousand years and and they would say look thousands just a, a symbolic number i mean like when god says in psalm 50 i own the cattle on a thousand hills it's like is that literal 1,000, is not nine hundred and ninety nine or is it a thousand and one well i 'm thinking he owns the cattle on all the hills i 've not done a hill count, uh, but i 'm thinking there 's more than a thousand hills on earth, so I think we all just know that that 's just a broad number we 're not trying to be literalistic it 's poetic. The question we have to ask though is is the where, is the number thousand spiritual or poetic and here in this text that 's the question you have to ask and uh The exhortation I had from Herbert Rivera and others is, Pastor, just read the text and say what it says here. Just do that. So it's like, all right, he's bound for a 1,000 years. And so you would think that the text might to some degree be, you know, you could say innocent until proven guilty. I'm just going to take it that it's going to happen unless there's some compelling reason not to. That would lead you to the other view, which is the premillennial view, that Jesus' second coming happens pre-before the millennium. And so he returns with the armies of heaven. He destroys Satan's, uh, the Antichrist's army, slaughters all of them, vast carnage. And then he sets up his thousand-year reign on earth and reigns for a thousand years. And that's what these verses are describing in part. Now, as I've studied these two different views, I commend them to you. You can continue to study them. I've said in a broad, general way, amillennialism does very well in the entire New Testament and not so well in Revelation 21 through 10. And premillennialism does not do very well in all of Paul's epistles and all that. It doesn't even seem to be in view. But it does a very good job of explaining these 10 verses. Well, I'm a verse-by-verse expositor, so I guess I kind of have to be premillennial today. Because as I go through these verses, it's hard for me to explain it from the amillennial view. It's just a hard explanation. What do you mean by that? Well, look where it starts. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. Verse 2, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked... And sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Now I say to you that the amillennial view does not have a good explanation for the details of those verses. Specifically the word abyss. The word abyss is a specific place mentioned in various places in the New Testament. But especially, as I mentioned last week, with the demoniac of the Gadarenes, in whom there was legions, 6,000 demons inside him, and he was terrified of Jesus. Now, just stop for a moment. What does that tell you about Jesus? The 6,000 demon legion is terrified of Jesus. And, and just a simple reading of Revelation 20, 1 through 10, as you compare Satan and Jesus Do you not see the infinite gap of power there is between the two? Satan is nothing compared to Jesus. But anyway, with the demoniac of the Gadarenes in Luke 8, they are terrified and they plead with Jesus. They beg Jesus not to throw them into the abyss before the time. Now, the amillennial view of the chaining of Satan is that it just has to do with evangelism. It has to do with missions. They acknowledge that Satan's out and about. They acknowledge that Satan is uh, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. They acknowledge that we need to be strong in the Lord and his mighty power and put on the full armor of God because our struggle is against the devil and his demons. They know that. But they say the binding is really focused on the deception of the devil to keep him from deceiving people about Jesus. So when you share the gospel with a co-worker, you sit down in the break room and you're sharing... If that co-worker is elect, and God's going to use you to bring that person to faith in Christ, Satan is going to be blocked, bound to some degree, from that interaction. And you're going to be effective, and you're going to actually be able to rescue them from the dominion of darkness and bring them over into the kingdom of light by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the way they... And I say amen, I think that happens, but I don't think that's what the abyss is all about here. Would we say that at that moment Satan was bound with a great chain and thrown in the abyss as you're there um, in the break room sharing the gospel? Or as missionaries are there and they learn the language and then they lead someone to Christ in East Asia or in Africa? Satan is with a chain in the abyss. Meanwhile, of course, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, but it's just a hard sell for me. I I I have a hard time accepting that exegetically. Remember what I told you, premillennialism does really well in a verse-by-verse exposition. If I were preaching 1 Corinthians 15 right now, I'd have a hard time with premillennialism because I just don't see the millennium in anything Paul writes about the resurrection. It just isn't there. But I'm not doing 1 Corinthians 15. I'm doing Revelation 20, so we're going to keep going. So I don't see it. I don't see Satan is bound with a great chain, thrown in the abyss, and it's locked and sealed over him so that he cannot deceive the nations. It doesn't seem like that's what's going on. So a more natural reading is that this is something that is yet to come. It it hasn't happened yet. And if you accept that, then you're like, all right, so this is yet to come. Jesus is going to come back, and then he's going to start his thousand-year reign. You're going to start peppering me with all kinds of logistical and practical questions. And I'm going to be like, I don't know. (laughs) I'll try to answer what it'll be like. Is it a kingdom? Yes, it is. Look at uh, what it says, verse 4 through 6. It says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ For a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. Do you see that at the end of verse 4? They came to life and what did they do with Christ? Reigned with him. Do you see that? That's a reign. That's a kingdom. So this would be called the millennial kingdom. Jesus is reigning physically on earth. That's the kingdom. It's right in the text. Now before we get to those who are going to come to life and reign with him. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's just picture what it's like for Jesus doing that. What does he come back to? Well, I can't even put into words what planet Earth is going to be looking like when Jesus comes back to it. It's going to be a smoldering pile of wreckage that he comes back to. In which the sea turned to blood and everything and and it died, in which... There's no fresh water in which there has been a massive worldwide earthquake in which the cities, plural, of the earth are destroyed. Piles of rubble. And so if you can imagine a massive rebuilding project, you've never seen anything like what Jesus would have to do to rebuild planet earth. But he can do it, friends. He, uh, the heavenly, his heavenly Father created everything through Him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Colossians one says, "Things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, rulers, powers, authorities, everything, through Jesus. He can do it." Also, I'm thinking about Nehemiah. Remember how he heard from his brother. The, the, the rubble that Jerusalem was filled with rubble and, and all that. And he goes and he asks permission from the king and he goes back and he's there to rebuild the wall. And they do it. And they do it in a very, very short amount of time. And all of the enemies of the Jews saw this was done by God. So how could we give Nehemiah a greater place than Jesus? Jesus can do it. So it, that doesn't deter me. The next question you might have, practical question, is who is he reigning over? Who's in the kingdom? Now, that's an interesting question. And I'm going to say, I don't know. But I have some thoughts. First of all, it's possible that all of Jesus' enemies, those that did not believe in him at the second coming, died in the final battle. If you look back at Revelation 19 and see what it says, 17 and following, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the midair, so the birds are summoned, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great, everybody. So one of the interpretations is that everybody who doesn't believe in Jesus, hasn't believed in Jesus up to that moment, when, he, when they see the sign of the Son of Man in the clouds of the heaven, they're going to mourn because they're going to die and every single unbeliever will drop dead and the birds will eat their flesh that's possible it's what the text says simply it is possible that revelation 17 1917 is just talking about all categories of people and that who is going to die would be just the army that was assembled to fight against the people of god just the battlefield participants that would leave then a population of unbelievers who then Jesus is going to rule over with a rod of iron, and they better behave themselves. So you've got one of two possibilities as your starter set, your human starter set for the millennial population. So they're either all of them believers, genuine believers in Christ, not yet resurrected, still just physical believers, just like us, who have been through a horrific time. All of their enemies, all of Christ's enemies are dead. They're all gone. And now you have rubble-filled, smoldering earth and nothing but believers in Jesus and these that are going to be raised to reign with them. So that's possible. Or, Or you have a mixed group, again, the wheat and the weeds still. But now Jesus is going to rule over them with a rod of iron. He's going to settle disputes between the nations. They're going to come to Zion, to Jerusalem, and say, to have those disputes settled. If they don't obey him, they're not going to have rain in their land, Zechariah says. There's lots of other images, and I don't want to get into all that. But there's lots of images from the Old Testament of how, yeah, it seems like there's possibly a mixed population and people who are in or aren't and, and all of that. But I would prefer at this point to say they all die... And what you have left are just genuinely regenerate, born again, but not yet glorified believers. Many of them Jews, but I don't think that they're just Jews because it says that he can't deceive the nations anymore. And so I think there are Gentile believers too. They're not just Jews at that point. So you've got what's known generally as tribulation saints. They're converted during the final era of history, and they're there. And they're your, I'm not being disrespectful, but just they're your starter set human, humanly for who's going to populate the millennial kingdom. Now here's what's interesting. They will need to be ruled over. And if you look at verse 4 and following, let me read it again. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not uh, worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. There is an amillennial interpretation of this. This These are just the martyrs in heaven who reign in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Let's set that aside. Let's zero in on the premillennial approach. These people are either... Everybody, all of the believers that have ever believed in Christ, including the, the martyrs, but who had died before that point. So the ones that are still alive, they're the starter set of the population. Everybody else is up in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Not just those who died in the tribulation, but everybody. And everybody is raised physically. We get our resurrection bodies at that point, And we sit on thrones and we judge... Who? Well, you judge the not yet glorified, not yet resurrected believers. And though initially you say, why do you need thrones and judgments and all that? Well, here's, here's the whole thing. If you believe in the millennium, the thousand years, and you believe in the, in the starter set, etc., those folks are not yet glorified. They're believers like you and me with an internal sin nature. And they're going to get old and they're going to die. And they're going to procreate. They're going to have children. Will their children be believers? Well, look at the advantage their children will have. There'll be no Satan to tempt them. Satan's locked up in the abyss. There will be no world evil system set up by Satan, where it says in 1 John, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. He's gone, and the world system he set up is gone. They'll all of them have godly parents, and they will have... Jesus reigning physically on earth in a glorified state there. And they'll have these resurrected people sitting on thrones to help them come to faith in Christ, etc. But here's the amazing thing not all of them are going to be believers in Jesus. And not all of the grandchildren are going to be believers in Jesus. And not all of the great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. It says in Isaiah 65, if that's describing millennial life, if you die at 100, we're going to think you died early. So let's imagine they die at 125 or 150. So you're going to get from 7 to 10 generations during the 1,000 years. So not all of the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren are going to be believers in Christ. So these, are going to, these resurrected, glorified saints are going to sit on thrones and judge the population and settle disputes under Jesus. Now I'm thinking it's got to be a narrow set of people. Why? Because I think the gospel's done very well over the last 20 centuries. I think Revelation 7 says there's a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people and nation. Friends that's a lot of judges. Imagine you're part of that remnant that survived the, you know, at the second coming. And you've got like a 10 to 1 ratio of resurrected, glorified people in front of you, judging you. And you guys are bringing up the rear. You know what I'm saying in terms of sanctification and holiness? It's an interesting dynamic. And I really can't resolve it. Actually, if I keep talking about it, I might talk myself out of millennialism right now. But at any rate, you've got glorified, resurrected believers who have arrived. I mean, they have arrived. They are perfect. They never sin. And they will judge those that are struggling and muddling through. I'm thinking if that's literally going to happen, you're going to have a narrow set. You don't need hundreds of millions of them. And so what the text says is specifically who it is that's raised. The souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God, beheaded. And they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark or their foreheads on their hands. So they lived during the time of the beast. They had the possibility of of receiving the mark of the beast, but they didn't and they paid for it by being uh, beheaded. So there's a very small group there. And they are given an honor, really. They're given a privilege of this early resurrection and be able to reign with Christ physically on earth. And that's what most millennialists say is exactly what's happening here. So they sit on thrones and they reign with Christ. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So that's either, in the amillennial view, that's all of the reprobates. And they come to life, so to speak, with resurrection bodies and they go to hell. Or it's the rest of us who are absent from the body, present with the Lord during the whole thousand years. We're up in heaven, doing whatever we do in heaven, while the millennial kingdom's going on. What is that? I have no idea. We'll be celebrating, excited about the millennial kingdom and worshiping God up in heaven, but the rest of them will be down. It's a difficult logistical issue, but there it is. We then come to life and we receive our resurrection bodies in a second phase. This is the first resurrection, that's the, the special ones that are chosen. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. Second death is hell. We learn that in the, in the rest of Revelation 20, which we'll get to God willing next week. But they're not going to go to hell. The second death has no power over them, those within the first resurrection. The second death isn't going to have any power over the rest of the saints who are resurrected either but the reprobate, it will come over them. And so this smaller set of believers will come to life and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years and they will be, we're told here in verse 6, priests of God and of Christ. So there's going to be a millennial religion and the millennial religion will be focused on worshiping Jesus, the Savior and the King. I completely deny that animal sacrifice will have anything to do with it. If you want to see me get upset, it'll be if you start talking to me about animal sacrifice in the millennium. I'll try to be pleasant. But I would just urge you, I'll say pleasantly, please go back and read the book of Hebrews. And come to the conclusion that God will never again accept blood sacrifice, animal sacrifice, ever again, ever, never. And if you want to talk to me about Ezekiel's millennial temple, we'll have a long conversation. But fundamentally, the religion will be a spiritual religion of following Jesus, but he's just at that place now in redemptive history, reigning bodily in glory. And these resurrected, glorified saints are going to help be priests of God and reign with him. So now I've walked you through Revelation 21 through 7. Let's finish the text and let me make a few comments about it. After that, well, it's not the end of the story. And this is what's so remarkable. And frankly, I think this is probably the point of the whole thing. Some of you are saying, "Okay, Pastor, why should I care?" I know that there are some of you saying that. I got it. Others are saying, "I want to care. I, I, I want to understand it." But I have a big question in my mind. I'm going to get to it in a minute. I, I, but I know, I know the question on your mind: Why do this? <laughs> why do this? What do you say? We just skip the millennium and just go to heaven? All in favor? I know you're all, all going to vote for it. I think, except some of you, like, "No, I'm excited to see the millennium. I think it'd be kind of fun. Then go to heaven." All right, but most of you are like, heaven is so good. It's so wonderful. No sin, no death, no mourning, no crying. Why do this? So we'll get to that, but let's finish the text. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. (sighs) To some degree, if you believe in the millennium, you, you have to say this is absolutely almost unbelievable that this would happen. After the thousand years, the binding is done, and the devil comes up out of the abyss where he was thrown. Parenthetically, I think that's a very hard verse for all millennials to explain. What does he come up out of at the end of the thousand years? It doesn't, it, it's hard for that view to explain. It. I'm just telling you, it doesn't do well here. So this is the end of the binding. Satan is on the loose. The devil's on the loose now. What does he do? I, I picture in my mind, this is not even close to comparing, but you remember how Napoleon lost a series of battles and was exiled to Elba. Somehow he gets off Elba and goes back to France. And instead of like, the French immediately arresting him and throwing him back in prison, they follow him to one more battle called Waterloo, where more of them were slaughtered to follow his tyrannical ambitions. This is a much bigger version of that. He's been exiled for a thousand years, locked up in the abyss. He comes out and he says, all right, who's with me? Let's go fight Jesus. The insanity of it is, it's just staggering. The the millennial kingdom has been beautiful. It's been well ordered. It's been well governed. It's been fruitful. It's been magnificent. Jesus has reigned with a rod of iron and that's resulted in peace and no disputes, no wars, beauty. And here, Satan, like that, can gather together from Gog and Magog. That's language coming from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Basically means rough, distant Gentile nations. He's able to gather these together for one more battle. One more battle. And how many are there? They're like the sand on the seashore. It's tragic. And so they come across the breadth of the earth, and they're coming to the camp of the people that God loves. Many think that's Jerusalem, but whatever. They're coming somewhere, and they're coming to attack the people of God one more time. There's very little described about this. Very little that we know about it. Just, it's pretty obvious who wins. Fire comes from heaven and burns them up. And that's that. You remember the story in Second Samuel, I think it is? No, no, Second Kings. Second Kings. Where, where a wicked king goes to arrest Elijah the prophet. Remember? And he's up on a hill. And the guy shows up with 50 men. And he's like, oh, man of God, come down. Remember that? And uh, he says, if I'm a man of God, my fire come from heaven and burn up you and your 50 men. Bang! They're dead. Remember? And then things happen in threes in Second in 2 Kings. So... Second king with his, or second captain with his 50 comes and says, Oh, man of God, the king says, come down. Well, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and burn up you and your 50. My favorite guy is the third guy. Oh, man of God, please, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, I would like to ask that you have mercy on my life. I have a wife and kids would like to survive the day. And Elijah goes with him and gives the king a prophetic message that he's going to die, and he dies. That's Elijah. This is Jesus. You don't come after Jesus. You don't come lay hold on him and topple him from his throne. Psalm 2 covered that. I have established my king in Zion, my holy hill. You're not going to topple him. So they come one more time and fire comes from heaven. And that's it. It's the end. It's the end of rebellion on earth. All right. Now, let me do what I can to answer the question, Why? My my sense of this is that we desired at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil an education. That's what it's about, knowledge, right? I did some research. In February of 1970, undergraduates at Harvard University were told that their tuition was going to go up next year. $200. From $2,400 a year to $2,600 a year. I almost fell over when I read that. I almost fell over. Do you know what a year at Harvard costs now? I don't know what it costs now, but two years ago, it cost $45,270 for one year, all costs. $45,000. By the way, since 1970 until that time, if it had kept pace with inflation, it would cost $15,700. $45,000, $15,000. I could probably go off on a tangent right now. I have five kids, all right? (laughs) I'm like, how did this happen? What's going on? The high cost of education. What the students at Harvard that year didn't realize is that they were surprised because they usually got just like one bump every four years, that it would never stop going up. The cost would keep going higher and higher and higher and higher for that education. That's a picture of redemptive history to me. We wanted an education in good and what? Evil. We've had six millennia of education. 6,000 years of education on evil in redemptive history. And sin has proven to be exceptionally stubborn to eradicate. Turn, if you would, in your Bible to Romans chapter 5. I want to show you something. This will answer, I think, the why question of why the physical millennium. I will say this. I said it last week. I'll say it again. You know that whether you believe in the millennium or not, if God wants one, there's going to be one. You realize that? So he's not going to collect all the amillennialists and they won't, be, they won't participate. That's not going to happen. And if there's not going to be a millennium and, you know, God's will, then it's just metaphorical language. Of this way. He's not going to gather all the premillennials and just do it for them because he loves them. All right, fine, I'll do a thousand. It's one or the other. He will decide. But for me, the the question is, what's good exegesis? What's good theology? How can we put all this together? And so I'm going to face the question, why would God do this? And I'm going to try to give an answer. Look at the end of Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, the second half of the chapter, is talking about Adam and how sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And this way, death came to all men because all sinned. S- through Adam, we sin. Through Adam, death entered the world. Now, at the end of this chapter, Romans chapter 5, Paul says this. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, verse 19, so also through the immediate obedience of the one man, the many were, will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. Now I'm telling you, you could just read right over that and just not even think about it. Why would God add the law of Moses so that the trespass would increase? Imagine firefighters showing up at a a fire, a house fire, and start spraying it with kerosene. Like, what are you doing? I mean, the fire is just out of control now. That's the image here. Why would God do that? Why would he want the trespass to increase? We'll keep reading. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. Not thousand year life. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's been going on for six millennia has been a clear display that the only force there is in the universe that can conquer sin is the grace of God. The sovereign grace of God in Christ. And it has to go to the nth degree. He has to get inside my soul. He has to get inside my mind and my heart. He has to take out the heart of stone and give me the heart of flesh. And he has to do more than that. He has to glorify me or I will sin. I'll sin. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, unglorified but sanctified and justified saved people. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. The very thing I hate... I do. And the thing that I want to do, I don't do. Why? Because it's sin living in me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we at last are delivered from death, we will have been delivered from sin. They happen at the same time. Death is the final enemy. And when death is finally gone, then sin will be finally gone and vice versa. So if he's going to have a starter set of unglorified but truly justified saved people that he comes and rescues, when they die, they're going to be absent from the body, present with the Lord just like us. They're going to go to heaven. Their children, if they believe in Jesus, if they trust in him as their personal savior, they will have their sins forgiven and then they'll go to heaven after much better lives than we're living. They'll die at 137 after having been really blessed in their labors. But they're going to die and go to heaven. But if their children don't believe in Jesus, despite all of the evidence, they're going to die and go to hell. And if they should happen to be living at the end of the thousand-year reign, Satan's going to call, and they're going to listen and hear, and they're going to come together under Satan and go fight Jesus. And that will be the final display... Of the wickedness of sin. One more thousand year period. Step by step. From Adam until Moses' sin reigned. It says it right in Romans 5. Sin reigned from Adam to Moses. Death reigned. And death reigned from Moses to Jesus' first coming. And sin and death has continued to reign in some way. On until the second coming. There's one more thousand year reign for sin. And death, and then Jesus will finally bring us into Revelation 21 where there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. We'll be glorified. And we'll remember and we'll look back and we got what we asked for. We got an education in evil and it was very costly. But now we love righteousness and hate wickedness just like him. So I think that's what's going to happen. I didn't even look at this. Bottom line is I don't know what else to think about the millennium. If in the end the amillennial view is true, then praise God for the limited binding of Satan and go out and evangelize. Go out and evangelize. Be involved in missions. Watch God bind Satan in front of you while you share the gospel with your boss or your neighbor or classmate or sweetmate mate or total stranger or go on a mission trip and reach an unreached people group. Watch God bind Satan right in front of you. Watch Christ rescue souls. That's awesome. In the meantime, know that someday we're going to get to a world, and I can't wait to preach it. I've got one more thing to preach, and that's judgment. Great white throne judgment next week, God willing. But then, new heaven, new earth. We get to look at it for two chapters. And we're coming to a place in which it's not a thousand years. It's forever. And there's no you know, long life. It's eternal life. And disease and sickness and death and sorrow will all be gone. We're going there someday. Now, I said this last week. If you're here today and you came in because someone invited you, you came in and walked off the street and you listen to this, you're like confused. (laughs) What is all this? What is all this? Well, what I said last week, I'll say to you again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Top priority for you is this. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And as many as received Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You don't need to do any works. You just need to trust in Jesus who was crucified for sinners like you and me. Who was buried and who was raised from the dead on the third day. Trust in him and you will be forgiven of all your sins. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the two weeks we've had to look at this difficult topic. It's not easy to understand the millennium. It's not easy to understand all of the ramifications. Father, we look forward to the time when Satan will be not merely bound, but thrown into the lake of fire, not to trouble us at all ever again. We look forward to that, Lord. In the meantime, help us to be bold with the gospel. Help us to be courageous. Help us to take risks for the gospel. Help us to be willing to go overseas as missionaries. Help us to be willing to walk across the office to a cubicle and talk to somebody who's maybe a new employee at the company and and introduce ourselves and and very soon in the conversation say, I'm a Christ follower. I'd love to talk to you more about the Lord or invite you to my church. Lord, help us to be bold in in witnessing on college campuses right around here at Duke and at UNC and NC State and Central. and Just help us to be involved in seeing people cross over from death to life. Help us to be bold we thank you for these things the things we've learned in jesus name amen
0: thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of god and build his kingdom only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org two journeys exists to help christians make progress in the two journeys of the christian life the internal journey of sanctification